Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Dr. Holly Pinheiro. He is an assistant professor at Furman University in South Carolina. His upcoming book is titled The Family's Civil War, Black Soldiers and the Fight for Racial Justice. I am joined by 14 of my classmates. Jerry, Jerry Secundi. Well, um, I'm a native of Washington, D.C., and went to an all-black elementary school through the fourth grade, didn't learn a damn thing. And so my parents put me in Georgetown Day School. I'm one of the early graduates. It only went through uh, the eighth grade at that point in time. I'm an environmental lawyer and work for state governments, federal governments, uh, oil companies, et cetera, and still have my hand in a little bit uh, and did a stint in the Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru. Okay, Mason Moffat. Mason. Uh, I'm down in Florida. Uh, my Regular home is in Maine. I'll be down here for another month or so. Uh, and then I'll get out of this dystopian state where uh, Governor DeSantis promulgates uh, a new outrage on a daily basis. <laughs> and uh, Doug. I'm Doug Shapiro. I'm a retired physician and academic behavioral ecologist. Uh, I grew up in a totally segregated Houston, Texas a long time ago. Uh, went away to school and basically never returned. And my wife and I live in Louisville, Kentucky, where the weather is uh, in the 50s today. Uh, Nick Bancroft, uh, outside of Boston, a little place called Medfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, business school after I graduated with these guys. India for a couple of years, then back here about 18 years in manufacturing and Oh, 20, 25 years as a fiduciary in Boston with trusts, wills, estates, investments, that kind of stuff. Alden. I grew up in Connecticut uh, and then have lived in D.C., Flint, Michigan, Chicago, and now San Mateo, California for the last 30 years, just Mm -hmm. south of San Francisco. Um, And uh, my wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm. We work with nonprofits. Okay, Anne. Hi, hi, I'm Ann uh, Huberman. I live in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Uh, I was an academic librarian, now retired, and uh, turned into a climate activist. I Somewhere along the way, I raised two daughters, one of whom was in Katanji Brown-Jackson's class, and she didn't wow. know it. She was very proud of uh, her, her, uh, her rising to the... Supreme Court, so. Oh, All great. Right. That's good. Uh, wow. Yeah. Spencer. Hi, I'm Spencer Jordan, uh, Evanston, Illinois, Harvard, 61, uh, Africa, Tanzania, with the Harvard uh, uh, predecessor to the Peace Corps uh, test uh, thing for Sarge Shriver, who was our dean of freshmen at the time. Uh, um, that's it. Uh, minority economic development and now 30 years of commitment to uh, teaching and learning for sustainable development. All right, Mr. McCluskey. Uh, John McCluskey, Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, After Harvard, went to the West Coast for a bit, 
Uh, after that, taught in various places all over the country. Uh, I've been here in Bloomington for, I don't know, it looks like 40, over 40 years now. Uh, retired. Um, father of uh, three sons. Um, and uh, riveted by these uh, hearings, um, mm. despite myself, I thought I would walk away after 10 minutes. No, 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 I can't leave it. I can't have to stay there. Right. Um, and doing something that I like in addition to writing fiction, and that is uh, interviewing um, jazz musicians mm. uh, who have to be close to 90 years old. Uh, that, that's the criteria. I'm looking at the guys and sustaining a long, long career, and I admire the, every one of them uh, who I've talked with so far. Peter. Yes, I'm an uh, editor and writer in New Hampshire, and uh, after Harvard, I joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and worked with SNCC for two and a half years in Southwest Georgia, and I still Went to jail four or five times down there, South Georgia. John. Oh, hi, uh, John Woodford from Benton Harbor, Michigan, born in Chicago. And I've been a paper oriented editor and writer throughout my life. I, I don't like electronic stuff, but here it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Hamp. This, this makes it possible for us anyway, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, I'm a uh, non-retired clinical psychologist in Nashville, Tennessee, and mm -hmm. usually I, I have to leave right at 12, but I'm seeing less people now, so I, I, I have a little more time in the morning. Uh, Peter, I like what you said about being in jail. I spent a, um, a month in jail, and it was a uh, in D.C., and it was a... Uh, important experience for me. Uh, uh, I'm also thinking about the uh, hearings that, that the real criteria is one, how long can you hold your bladder? And, and uh, number two, uh, uh, how, how well can you go through a frat boy hazing? All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Although you have one frat on, on uh, your side and another frat against you. On the other side, right. right. Yeah. Marcy. Uh, I'm in New York City, still working, fighting disinformation of stag staggering magnitude and scope um, being used to sell bad public policies and bad public spending priorities. Okay, keep on keeping on. Davis. Yes. Uh, hi, I grew up in South America, went to business school after graduating with all these guys from, from Harvard and spent most of my career in public broadcasting, public television and radio in New York City mm -hmm. and in Philadelphia, where we still live. Okay, George, George Jones. So I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I am frequently, and this week not, no, is no exception, reminded of an episode of Law and Order where mm -hmm. a black assistant DA is having a conversation with a white assistant just uh, assistant district attorney. And the white assistant says, why does this case have to be about race? And the black guy says, everything is about race. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep, I hear you, I hear you. And now uh, our guest is uh, Professor Holly uh, Pin Pinheiro and his book that's coming out in, uh, I guess June is the, the Families, Civil War, Black Soldiers and the Fight for Racial Justice. And welcome, thanks for coming on. 
Uh, thank you. I could honestly just listen to y'all talk. I was, uh, it's <laughs> great to be here firstly, and to hear your stories and experiences. I have so many questions. Um, so briefly about me and then I'll just jump in and have the conversation. So the bio of my story hopefully helps make sense of the book that's coming out. It releases June 15th. Um, it is available for pre-order. Um, if you get it through and I'm happy to post the link University of Georgia Press, they usually do offer discounts. And I say this to everyone other than an institution, buy the paperback, do not get the hard copy. The hard copy is $120. I make like very little on this. The paperback is $26. I would rather you save than spend too much. Um, First and foremost, my mother, uh, there, I hope so. Yeah, I, I believe an ebook will also be available. Um, talking about an audiobook, and actually, I've tried to option it for maybe a television or a movie as well. I've tried to write it with the hope. I have a friend who works in the film industry, so I'm trying to weasel him to maybe want to produce it. Um, my mother served for 25 years in the United States Navy, um, so she was started out as a recruiter in Harlem. Um, we, I was actually raised in Australia, born in Virginia, including my mother's military service and my academic career, I have moved 30 times in my life. Mm. So some of these places y'all were mentioning, I've lived, whether it was San Diego, San Jose, just to give you a context, within a five-year span, I went from Iowa City, Iowa, to Baltimore, Maryland, Baltimore to, to Portland, Oregon, Portland to San Diego, San Diego to San Jose, San Jose to Orlando, Orlando to Huntsville, Huntsville to Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa to Augusta, Georgia, and now here in Greenville, South Carolina. So that's that that movement is very like that's just how my mom had it, like the go bag. Um, so for me, understanding my mother's military experience was very important, and trying to push people to think about her as a person. Right, my mother's she retired after Desert Storm. You know, pre accessibility of the internet. I'm used to when she would get deployed, the only like contact I had was of a news report or if she was able to get a letter home, which took months, right? So it was like, I was always traumatized when she would get sent away because that meant I would get dislocated to a family member who would watch me until until she returned. And I'll say all that to come back to the research. Um, Went to community college uh, in, in Orlando went to University of Central Florida for my undergraduate master's and doctorate at the University of Iowa and a postdoc at the University of Alabama. Uh, currently working at Furman University where I am apparently the first tenure track black faculty member in the history department ever, which is very alarming and depressing. <laughs> I mean, to keep it real, like when they told me that I was struggling to process, like what does that say about the institution? But at the same time, it's a privilege um, to have this opportunity because there's a lot of rich diversity to Greenville. It's very, very black and very brown. And yet the university is not reflecting that, which is a long-term battle. All right. So my book, The Family Civil War, is honestly, first and foremost, connected to my obsession with the film Glory. (laughs) Uh, Even in sixth grade, you know, we watch that in every social studies course. I know that film word for word. I've seen it way too many times. Um, but there was always lingering questions I had. 
And one of those is even talking with, uh, if you think about the film, there's a scene where the campfire where uh, Fred, uh, um, Morgan Freeman mentions he left some of his family to enlist. Right? I think he says like, I left my kinfolk in Bundy. And that statement always stuck with me because I wanted to know what was that for those people left behind? Who were the, who were the, the mothers, the daughters, the sons, the multi-generational families that were left in the wake of that consequence of serving? Now I say all that to come back to so my book is about black soldiers from the North who were freeborn, particularly in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, from 1850 well into the 1930s. But it's not so much about black soldiers as it is black families. So what I really wanted to understand is whom these soldiers were long before they enlisted. Rather than limiting their service to their life story, whom were they as children? Where did they go to school? What was their, you know, was their parental dynamic? Did they have a formal education? Were they the first to be freeborn of their family? Whom did they live with? Uh, and then what happened once they enlisted? And for those who did and survived, what happened as they aged? Who took care of them? Who mourned their passing? Who helped them with medical care? Who helped them struggle to navigate the application for a pension? Whom was at their, you know, like whom remembered them 20 years after their deaths? And in taking that approach, I wanted to be more inclusive and recognize if we look at Black families, we're actually able to talk about hundreds of thousands of people whom understand the consequences of military service were never just limited to those in uniform, right? And that transcends even the Civil War. Um, you know, I often, when I talk to military communities and families and veterans, it's, it's like they, they'll tell me like, you get it, that there are people connected to us that matter just as much. So the, the book is really tracing these young men and their families well into the 1930s. So it's looking at, for example, what is the consequences of enlisting? The stories that I've uncovered, so it's looking at 185 black men that I could find that served in either the third, the sixth, or the eighth United States colored infantry that mobilize and train in Philadelphia. The question always is why Philly? Well, there's a couple of reasons, but first and foremost, I have family there. So doing the research was easier. I mean, just <laughs> being as, as truthful as I can is like, Staying at my uncle's house was a lot more affordable to the broke college student, but also <laughs> Philadelphia has one of the most rich um, histories. We all know this, but particularly with 19th century history, the women's rights movement, um, you know, black history, military service and Philadelphia had there's a lot of history that's been written about it during the Civil War but not enough about black experiences during the Civil War era and its aftermath. Um, so for me, it's like even looking at the consequences of military service and enlistment is actually way, a way to talk about the long history of civil rights activism. So for me, when I'm talking to my students, you know, I'm recognizing some of the things that you've all mentioned about your important experiences that are very inspirational to hear um, are part of their stories, right? So I say, you know, Medgar Evers, the, the things you've experienced are part of what we would say is the modern civil rights movement. But black women during the Civil War era, for example, did public sit-ins on the transit to go support black men as they enlisted. 
and they will unfortunately experience violence, including being forcibly removed from moving vehicles because they would not sit in what they called the Negro car, which was basically just an exposed platform in Philadelphia during the wintertime where there were documented cases of elderly people and even pregnant women freezing to death as they were trying to go support the black men to enlist. So the families are in a fight to support these men as they enlist that also deserves recognition. And that the soldiers, I don't talk so much about the battles in terms of they were at this battle on this date, they were in a battle for wages. So they're writing home to their family saying, I haven't been paid in nine months. And the famous scene from Glory when Denzel and, and even Matthew Broderick, they're saying, tear it up, right? Which did happen for the 54th Massachusetts. For the families that I look at, they actually say, do not do that. We need this money. We, we are freezing, we're hungry, and that we matter too. So it puts this tension on black men who are being denigrated in terms of the lack of equal pay and not being paid in nine months and the pressures at home from their families that are pleading with them to bring whatever money is supplied to them home. And that military policies, unfortunately, due to their racial and gender discrimination, impact families too. And you know, connecting to Juneteenth, which is a very important moment, right? And I say this also as someone who has family members that we can trace who were enslaved in the state of South Carolina. Like I know that on my mother's side. And I never want to claim that talking about freed people's experiences don't matter. But if you look at the records of Black soldiers who were in Texas during Juneteenth and were also a part of Appomattox, and one of the soldiers that I look at, he says, I was there. I was at the surrender. So Black soldiers were always in these pivotal moments. But the things that they talk about at Juneteenth is they want to go home. They're not talking about the importance of how we look at it today. They're saying, I signed up to defeat Robert E. Lee and the Confederates. That mission was accomplished months ago. What am I doing in Texas? What am I doing at the Mexican-American border trying to stave off an invasion from the French? What am I doing oppressing Native American peoples when I have a family at home that is pleading for me to come home? And unfortunately, most of the black soldiers will get disabilities that continue well into their elderly years because of what's happening in Texas. So there's actually Juneteenth, unfortunately, is connected to racist policies by the federal government that have long term consequences for the families and those who survive. But this, this story is also about what happens to them as they're older, those who survive, who come home with what we would know as PTSD. Some of, unfortunately, which does not get enough attention, some of the soldiers come home and they are horrifically violent to their families. One of the soldiers, um, he will, on a, at least according to testimony from neighbors, on a almost weekly, it seemed like, basis, will try to kill his wife. So much so that the neighbors would have essentially almost like a neighborhood watch for they were listening for the screams or, or any kind of commotion and they would break in and, and try to stop it. He would also try to burn his children's ears and faces on the stove, so much so that they, the family put him into an asylum because they said that 
they were in a war for survival from someone that they loved dearly who came home with trauma. And that those stories matter too, right? The consequences of seeing the horrors of death and disease have consequences to families. I've seen it with my mother in terms of her issues coming home, transitioning back to civilian life. It's hard and it's important that we understand that too. And I'll just close with this. Part of this story is also a way to talk about the politics of memory and the important role that black women in particular played in supporting these communities. Because the most vocal and visible individuals in my book are black women in terms of they are very consistent in their demands that their families' experiences are never forgotten, right? The, the whole jargon of the lost cause that the Confederacy and people that adore it try to push. If we look at black women's testimony in a pension, they are constantly saying to the Bureau of Pensions, which later becomes Veteran Affairs, you will never forget what we've given. And they're saying this in the 1920s and 1930s. And I'm gonna spoil the end of my book, don't tell my publisher. <laughs> One of the daughters, and I was not expecting this in the record. Um, I found a, a letter that was coming, that came from Eleanor Roosevelt's desk during the Great Depression, in which it was clear that one of the daughters of the veterans, um, the veteran was deceased. She will write to Eleanor and say, and I'm paraphrasing, my mother was rejected for a pension. She's dying of cancer. She needs a mother's pension. I have cancer. You and your husband are doing so much for the world during this very important moment. And she'll say something to the effect that I know I don't really matter, but I, and I, that I'm just a poor black woman from Philly, but I really would, I'm asking, beseeching you to see if you can look into this case. Eleanor responds in seven days from her desk. I can't get people to answer emails in two weeks. <laughs> right? And it was like, I mean, I was moved to tears to, to, to have this correspondence from the first lady to this woman. And the first, and, and Eleanor is basically like says to the VA, because then she also starts a conversation with the v, VA and says, I want an answer now, not yesterday, today. And I will not cease until this is rectified. And then this daughter and the first lady are having this basically like chain of conversations in which the daughter is saying, thank you so much for your last letter. Like, I can't believe you're taking the time out to write to me. Thank you so much, right? And it's just like, it gives me chills. Now I'm not gonna spoil how it's, it ends because I want you to read the book, <laughs> but there is a beauty in that, that example because on one level, these stories are hard. They don't have the, the happy end, the Hollywood ending, right? The one where it's like, it always ends like you want it to at the same time. The beauty in it is that these people are making explicit demands that they matter during a period of time when white supremacy and, and this push towards uh, honoring Confederates and, and a white version of the Civil War that has ignored black people's and their white allies' experiences for so long, guess what? The first lady ignores the lost cause. So we can look at these people as a living monuments. During this period where we're talking now about monuments, 
you know, because people always ask me all the time, well, what do you think about monuments? I'm always like, I'm gonna keep it real. I don't really care. <laughs> Other than taking down the ones that are clearly explicitly racist, like those need to go. And, I, and I'm like, but in terms of what I would love is a monument that recognizes black communities and families because it's never just the soldiers and the soldiers tell you that even if you look at their their diaries during the war they say explicitly black women are the most important recruiters and supporters to the war effort congressman william d kelly in pennsylvania will say it during a recruitment pitch he'll say nobody is more important than a black woman and that you through your relationships are going to be the ones to put the pressure on men to serve and that's a point that I bring up in the book. I'm so tired of people ignoring Black women's prominent role in the Civil War. They matter. And that my second book, which is going to talk about Camp William Penn, which is actually connected to Lucretia Mott, one of the most important abolitionists and advocates for women's suffrage, who was also a white woman that will donate her family's land for the creation of Camp William Penn, for whatever reason, is ignored in terms of understanding black military service. So it's just these ways in which there are so many important figures who deserve just as much attention as those in uniforms. Now I'll stop talking because that's what academics do way too much. <laughs> you know, I, so in the back of the book, I have the list of the soldiers because my hope is that their family, and I've tried to do more of a narrative story rather than the academic dry version of you know, uh -huh. theory because my hope is that families We'll see this um, and maybe hope of all hope is somebody has some records in an attic somewhere that they want to share. Well, there, there, there certainly will be. Yeah. 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 Good. Good. Well, thank you. This is fascinating. Very, very interesting. Mm. Spencer, you. Spencer. Uh, Holly, uh, we're going to have to talk. <laughs> we will have to talk. I, I, uh, okay. Real fast. Yes. The, because of group, the group, 30 seconds. I love uh, my book, The Dream Dancers, the volume one, deals uh, uh, with the history of New Bedford. So I concentrated mm. on New Bedford. So I know you know all about that. That's mm. the home of the 54th. Yep. yep. Uh, family, my, my uh, great uh, granduncle was the uh, founder of the Company C mm. of the 54th Massachusetts. That's the one that was featured in Glory. They carried the regimental flag and right. Sergeant Carney was carried the flag and got six bullets. Well, we right. were, we fought in that war, and uh, the uh, my William Gray, my my ancestor. We talk about women. Mm. His uh, uh, wife said, "I have a photograph of them," uh, and she says, "Wherever he goes, we will. I will go with him as a black woman. Mm. I will serve in the camps." And she did, and she helped bury the dead at Fort Wagner. Wow. And and wow. so on, on and on. But the last thing I'd like to just read is just. 10 seconds, it's about another one. I'll just, my two things about, I totally, Roosevelt Eleanor is one of the great women, great people in history, in my right. book. Right. Uh, but I think that um, uh, here's Clara Barton. Here's Clara Barton burying the dead. Uh, uh, I'll include this, I'll just read this out of the book. Uh, she goes to Fort Wagner. Clara Barton would uh, uh, write one of the most poignant su summaries of the events on Morris Island. Here's Clara. We have captured one fort, Greg, and we have a charred a house, home, Wagner, and we have built one cemetery. This is her 
comment of the results of the battle. Uh, uh, Morris Island, the thousand little sand hills that in the pale morning, that in the pale morning, uh, moonlight, and then a pale moonlight are a thousand headstones and the restless ocean waves that roll and break upon the whitened beach sing an eternal requiem on the roll warm gallant dead who sleep beside. I mean, that's, that's women in the war. Uh, so there's, that's just, I'll get off the thing, but that's just so many of the things, how the cities were important. Oh, and, I agree. Uh, Kelly uh, the, uh, uh, of the uh, Boston, Mel King said, this ought to be uh, the keys to the city of New Bedford. What you've done mm. for Philadelphia, he said, they ought to give you a key. <laughs> <laughs> How you put them on the map, the gallantry of the New Bedford people. Okay, I'm out of here. You know, you're wonderful. My Thank God. you. I mean, I, firstly, I hope that you uh, and your family donates, if you haven't already, some of the, just the pictures. Like, I will say, I found one picture of the veterans that the, the people see it's like funny I, I call them my families because i've been researching them for a decade so it's like i've like I'm, i've been with them for so long and now i get the privilege of sharing them with y'all um and i found one photo that wasn't supposed to be in the file and the archivist scolded me because i didn't know it was in there and they didn't either so but it was him <laughs> as a in the 18 1890s he was a veteran who would travel he literally traveled the united states going as far west as Oregon and wearing, like he was known as the old black barber. He would play up his veteran status to get more clientele as a barber. Um, but I would just also say the thing about the flags, and this is something I'm, I'm trying to do a lot in my work is a lot of people, the soldiers talk about this in the records but and, and primary sources. The people who created the flags that regiments took in to service well, particularly the regimental ones were funded or created by mostly women, white and black. So, and, and to your point, you know, when, when soldiers are saying we're taking those flags to the front line, they're actually taking black women as symbols. So black women were always there. But if we also include Susie King Taylor, who was a free woman and a nurse, I mean, heck, I was, as I tell my students, she was really good at using a gun. And she talked about that in her memoir. She said, I like shooting. I'm really good at it. <laughs> so it's like these ways in which we need to put more respect on black women. They were always there, just like mm -hmm. white women. Women were always a part of war efforts. And for whatever mm -hmm. reason, we privilege men. George, George Jones. Holly, how did the federal government justify not providing resources to support the black Civil War veterans? Or did they just ignore it? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that is okay. So here's the, that's a great question. So the, the short version, part of it is by post civil war, uh, particularly by the 1880s up through the 1910s, the majority of the United States federal budget was actually pensions. So they were going, the federal government becomes obsessed with culling or skimming back those who are on it. But the history of the civil, the pensions dates back to the revolution when I think there were actually at that time, 18 black men who become pensioners. So there's a long history and they're actually the first federally funded social welfare program, which is always fascinating to me when we talk about these issues. And I'm saying, if you don't like social welfare, then you don't like pensions, which means you don't like veterans, which means you're right, like opens up this paradox of like, 
you sure you want to get on that rabbit hole, random person? Um, for Black people, there's a lot of complications, partly because of literacy, particularly if we're talking freed people, but even free-born Black people. Um, as my book shows, sadly, the federal government is, begun, is going to become hyper-focused on the legitimacy of these Black families, particularly ones that did not get a legal, mar a legal marriage. And, and part of this, as I argue, is that Black women didn't do it, one, because it was too expensive to go through the process. It was too expensive to get a divorce. There was just so much scrutiny. And by doing a common law marriage, they had the flexibility to leave, particularly if they just don't like their partner anymore, right? Like they have freedom or if their partner was abusive, which also sadly materializes. However, from the federal government's perspective, never getting a legal marriage opens up all these problems, right? So here's what I like. So the book opens in 1884 with the, I use this statement by a widow that I was not expecting. She says to a, pay, a pension agent who was a white man, I hate the United States Army and that the Civil War destroyed my family which I was not expecting. I thought she was gonna be talking about freedom and the right to vote and all that. And she's like, uh-uh, y'all stole my husband and I've never seen my son again. So I don't look at the civil war the way you do. I look at it as is the disillusion of my family structure. And why are you do, wanting me to provide testimony about what is legitimate or not? And there's a lot of those kind of conversations of widows, um, one other quick example as a veteran will get a cannon shell stuck in his head at Morris Island, actually, because um, they were also part of those, the Wagner and all that. He, the surgeon will say that they can't remove the shell because it'll kill him. So he lives the rest of his life basically with this open wound that never fully heals. He'll die. His widow will apply for a pension. After a 10-year application, she'll get it but she'll lose it the following year after she's awarded it because there was a rumor by a neighbor who was white who hated her that she was a sex worker. And the pension agent will even admit, look, there's no validity to this, but this is a way to get her off the roll, so screw her. And it's so that even, so in the title, when I'm saying the family civil war, I'm trying to tip my hat to that these families are in a war against the federal government in the later years on the bureaucracy and racism and gendered discrimination of the pensions. And that's an unfortunate reality that many military communities and families, and I've seen through my mother still deal with, the heightened bureaucracy and having to prove oneself through documentation and testimony, unfortunately is still pervasive today. I'm very interested in what you're talking about, Holly, here. Uh, also, it's it's like a uh, telephoto shot of, uh, and if if we pull back into a wide angle shot, one of the things that gets me asking about is I've never seen a history of black women in mm. in in the United States, and and also what the communities were like that they came from in uh, yes. uh, Africa, and, and and how this ties in with. Uh, role of family and mm -hmm. bonds like uh it, it was like a my understanding of the family in uh europe is that it was kind of capitalism in, in a way it was an economic unit and mm. uh there are maybe a whole different 
economic unit involved with uh, right. uh, uh, black family traditions. So you have to actually bring up uh, a really important point of my book. So when I'm defining the family, it is those who were blood related without question, those through marriage. And I'm recognizing to me, a common law or an informal marriage is legitimate in my opinion, because the community will say that. They'll say in testimony, so-and-so is Mr. and she's Mrs. So I'm putting respect on how the community sees the people in their lives. Even if the federal government, going back to the last question that George raised, is saying it's not, right? Because I think that's important is community and self-identity versus what others say about, particularly the governmental structure. Mm -hmm. But I'm also tipping my hat and acknowledging what it's a term that scholars use called fictive kinship, which actually has ties to African society, right? And, but it's also even been like connected to Japanese history and scholars. Basically what it is, is rather than saying someone is a border in a home, right? And that there's some quid pro quo, I'm in your house because I have something you want. If I use the term fictive kin, I'm acknowledging our humanity and that you might just care for me. And as I tell my students, I put it like this, there is probably a time if you have or will have where you're crashing on a friend's couch or you're staying at their place, right? So when I was in grad school, I was living with my friend in California. He let me stay with him for a few months. I didn't really pay any bills, but he trusted me enough to stay in his private space and to, to continue to do my research and go through that. And there's a bond that we had. I wasn't a border to him. I was like, we're family. Right. Like, I'm not going to let you in my house and crash in my house if I don't trust you on some level. Like, just be honest. And if we use that kind of framing, that reality, then it's actually I'm arguing that some of these families are actually racially mixed because some of the soldiers as young children are raised in white households during times when Philadelphia and David knows this clearly like better than I do the rich history um, and even in terms of the racial violence, sadly, that Philadelphia had in, throughout the 19th and 20th century. And yet some white families open their homes and trust and care for black children. And that some of the, also the veterans as children opened, as their families opened their homes to re a refugee, you know, people who were uh, escaping from slavery. So it's these families are diverse they're not limited in terms of just black people in some cases, they're people mm -hmm. and that they all care for each other. Mm -hmm. And that's the story, part of the story anyway. John. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, I had two uh, great grandfathers from the Michigan volunteers. Mm. One of them, um, Thomas Elbert Woodford was really pretty much ruined by his war experiences and became alcoholic and right. your, um, tubercular I mean, he struggled and mainly they, we had the records of his trying to get pension uh, mm. payments and it frustrated him a great deal and it you know it really kind of led to his he was a barber but it led to his earlier uh, death uh, but the other one um james waring went on to become a trustee at howard and wow. was a chaplain and he went to um his his son James Henry Nelson wearing the second or third, I can't remember. Anyway, he was in the class of 1913 at Harvard, 50 years before our class. And he ran the Donningtown, Pennsylvania Industrial School for uh, black kids outside of Philly. 
okay. for many years. Wow. And uh, so that family came out of the war because, you know, they went into it with uh, more resources and they weren't mm -hmm. as damaged. Right. But the, uh, the other person was quite damaged. So his, his offspring, um, well, they do drink on that side of the family a bit and it takes some of them down. Right. <laughs> some of the men get taken oh. out of the alcohol. <laughs> I mean, I'm hearing like the history nerd in me, right? Is already yeah. like, oh, I hope y'all have some records you want to, like, this is like, even when y'all were telling your stories, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I need to record this. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, John, like, I, I'm curious if you have, if there's any, you said the pensions, if there's any Yeah, they have, they have uh, documents of his being, trying to get his pension and whatever they said in Indianapolis, I think mm. he's trying to get it. So that's, that's the, I mean, that is the one thing that I know families like yourself, you know, some more about the soldiers and your family stories that I don't. And that is something I do definitely want to acknowledge is like, so the primary record I'm using is the census, the federal census, which is actually really informative. And that's where I learned their childhood structure and then the pensions uh, and in there, the fascinating thing for those of you who ever looked at him is if, even if I'm looking at John's story, the, the people giving testimony will be like, I know this is about his case, but let me tell you where I went to school as a kid, right? Mm -hmm. So you do actually learn a lot of the community because for many people, this is the one time that someone on the federal government is gonna hear their story and they will tell you, like I have one record that is 400 pages, mm -hmm. um, but then I have some that are three pages. So mm -hmm. diaries, you know, family histories, would add so much breadth to this. And I do not want to claim that my story is the end all be all. I hope that this reinforces what you and Spencer and others have highlighted that there's so many beautiful, challenging, but important at the end of the day stories and families that deserve recognition as well. Okay, uh, again, it's a fascinating project and I had a lot of questions, <laughs> but I, I, I can boil them down to maybe a couple. The first one was one you've just answered and that is the sources for the research. So yes. It sounds like you're, you're getting narratives yes. from letters and, and, yes. and collections and, and, yes. and, the, and the census to locate the whereabouts of people, maybe. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'd also okay. add, uh, so I do use the Christian Recorder, which uh, is with the African Methodist Episcopalian Church. And uh -huh. then there's another Black newspaper in the Civil War era called the Weekly Anglo-African, published uh -huh. out of New York City. Uh -huh. And I, I use those one because a lot of advocates for soldiering would use those as platforms to say like whether to or sometimes not to enlist. But when the war hits and black men enlist, they'll write their memoir or they'll write what they're experiencing in the black newspaper that's distributed everywhere. So one of the soldiers from Philly will stay in Florida and become the first black man to pass the state bar and practice law in the state of Florida, and also one of the first politicians that was black in Florida, but he was a Philadelphian. And during the war, he's writing in the black newspapers. So it's like the black press is surreal with the amount of information they provide. Wow. The second question has to do, and you, you touched that uh, just now, and that's the impact of the soldiers on their communities. What do they bring back? Are there patterns for that? Because I know that it probably went thousands of directions. Yeah, yeah. so then that, there it is. I think they went a multitude of ways for, I would say it's big, their biggest impact is without a doubt um, going to be within the black communities because there will be 
um, what they called the colored conventions that will spring up across the United States and reconstructing South were one of the key uh, parts of those events were highlighting how because of black military service, black men, black male suffrage should happen and the protection of the civil rights of all black people. Uh, However, and there's also the Grand Army of the Republic, which is connected to the, uh, the pensions and presidential campaigns. But most of the soldiers that I studied, they don't go to any of these events. Like one of them straight up says, I think the GAR is one of the stupidest organizations. And I went to one meeting and I thought it was a waste of time, which is not what I was expecting. <laughs> right? Like I thought he was going to be like, oh, this is a great. They're, they're advocating for all these things. He's like, nah, I was stupid. Um, uh-huh. But the, I would say their communities seemed to mobilize in various ways to support each other. And where I see it, one of the most ways is in providing informal health care for each other. Veterans wow. will, a lot of them will remain in contact for the rest of their lives. So they'll support each other. They'll say, oh, yeah, I see John every every other day. I see Joe every, and you're like, we, we still remain in contact. So there's like almost a, a, these beautiful bonds of friendship that they experience together that will help each other to support, including providing testimony and how to navigate the pensions. So mm-hmm. in theory, if if I got a pension, I would tell you what to say, and more importantly, what not to say as you're going through the process, because that's really what it would be. It was like, don't say this. Don't get so-and-so as a pension agent. You want this person. They, uh, they, they're good. They'll, they'll uh, listen. Mm-hmm. So it's like there was these support networks that are very important to the story. Good. Nick. Nick. I, I wonder if you would say something about the role of religion in these people's lives, uh, the women, yes. the men. So the, the sources don't explicitly state their faiths. However, those who I can find where they did a legal marriage, the majority of them did them in various black congregations. And I would say that the black church is without a doubt, particularly the AME church in Philly is going to be one of the most important hubs in terms of firstly black women's activism and what they called a Dorcas D O R C A S Dorcas societies, which date long before the civil war, but black women were using those. They were auxiliary religious organizations where they would, read to each other. They would help with uh, escaped runaway enslaved people in terms of clothing, helping them on the Underground Railroad. But they also would go do door-to-door campaigns to get Black people to read the, the Christian Recorder. So they were very involved in that. And the many in- informal recruitment stops were Black churches, one of those being Mother Bethel. Right. Like so Frederick Douglass and Charles Redmond and Henry Highland Garnet. Henry Highland Garnet was, I believe, a Presbyterian minister. And he'll also be the first chaplain for the 20th USCI. And as I say to students, if you've ever seen Gangs of New York came out 2001 or two, they they depict the New York City draft riot. And what makes that event, which is really horrible because mostly it focuses on black communities, Mm -hmm was that seven months after that violence, the 20th will march down those same streets with guns. 
and that black women were very visible in those spaces. But a lot of those victims will become black soldiers, which is really interesting as well. Um, but yeah, black women, the church are going to be very important. Douglas will go to Mother Bethel, I think, and he'll do this very Frederick Douglass powerful speech, right? Where he'll be able, he'll talk about in 1863 all the importance and prominence of serving and how one needs to prove their manhood through service. And at the end, he'll say, "All right, who's going to stand up and like join?" And nobody does. <laughs> and in fact, in, in fact, somebody just straight up boo. Right. And then there's a white gentleman in the crowd who stands up and says to Frederick Douglass, why should they? What has this country shown to black people? What has this country shown in terms of the protection of slavery and the, the oppressment of any black person within its its borders and territories? This country deserves or these people deserve more from this country before they give their lives. And that is a, a moment that does not get talked about enough because Douglas basically walks out like that didn't go well. But it's an <laughs> but it's an important moment to recognize one how churches were important in the war effort, but also how there was agency and divisions amongst black people. Not every black person wanted to be a soldier. In fact, the families, a number of them, will say in the years later, we wished they had never done it. A father will say, because his son will run away and enlist and die 90 miles away from where their family lived. And in the 1890s, he'll say, I regret that this happened. I lost my son and will never be the same. So when people talk about the war, they never talk about what it meant for me. Right. So it's just like it's very personal. And it's like to me, that's very important. I would just add that. Uh... There was a survey in 2011 by the Daily Beast of the mm -hmm. most rigorous colleges in the U.S., and Furman ranked above Harvard. <laughs> so I, I hope the professor is going to grade this seminar on the curve. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like I, uh, Furman has taken some adjustment. Now, this is honestly, like I said, I am inspired just hearing your life stories. I, I really. I'm excited to see, like I said, John and Spencer's personal connections. I have a thousand questions. David's Philly connections. I definitely hope we can meet in the future. And I mean, my hope is, like I said, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to do book talks. Um, so uh, I'll be near Bloomington and hopefully Juneteenth um, trying to do as much to get these people's stories out there. Because um, I'll say the bigger point is, even though this is about Black Philadelphia, in reality, they travel everywhere. Um, one of the soldiers that I looked at in my dissertation, for example, he was formerly enslaved in Tennessee and he will travel the world. He will move to New York, enlist as a free man. Later he'll say, yeah, I lied, I was actually enslaved because I wanted the money that comes with being free. But after the Civil War, he will become a sheep herder in Australia for five years. Oh, wow. And I say this as someone who lived in Australia, like, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> then he will come back to the United States as a free man and live across from where he was formerly enslaved. Like there's so many of these kinds of stories out there that it's like, it's just, it's, it's awesome to have the opportunity to talk with all of you about theirs and your histories. All right, well, thank you what so your much. What were your mother's duties that had her traveling like that? <laughs> so now, now that's, that's a great question. So part of it, my mom won't tell me all of it, 
So she worked for the DOD at one point, apparently. And she like keeps, it's been 20 something years, right? I'm like, mm. mom, what did you do in DC? I can't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, lady, it's declassified by this point. Like, come on, like, what do you know? <laughs> like, um, but she was, uh, she was part of a uh, supply ship. It was the UNSS Cirrus. So like her last, uh, she did, she would travel to Rome. She, during Desert Storm, she was basically right off the coast during all this stuff. So for me watching the news and seeing the bombings, I'm always like was hyper sensitive to how close are they to the coast in terms of what's happening. But yeah, she saw combat and she she traveled a lot. So my and I'll just close with this. Like the thing for me is like I always was jaded about how people talked about her service. Because they would often look at her and say, thank you for your service. And mm -hmm. I'd get really pissed off because I'd be standing right there as a little kid going, yeah. what about me? Right? Like, <laughs> who, I was the one struggling when mommy was gone, right? Like, me and my brother and sister, we were the ones helping mom. Like, like we met her too, right? All right. So it's like when people say those kind of, and I, like, thank you for your service. I'm like, put more respect on the people around them too. <laughs> they are just as important. Oh, wow. Well, listen, thank you so much. It was really great. And uh, thank you. We'll, we'll be definitely and tell us when the book is out again and the yes. title. And all. Uh, so the, the book is called The Family's Civil War, mm -hmm. Black Soldiers and the Fight for Racial Justice. Uh, you can get it for pre-order right now. Um, Amazon has it. Uh, the University of Georgia Press. Do not get the hardback paperback. It's cheaper. <laughs> It's cheaper, I promise you. And I'm like, I'm, I'm being as blunt and loud. If the organization wants to buy it, cool. But if you're buying it for you, paperback, please. <laughs> it, it's releasing June 15th, but I believe if you get the pre-order, it might actually release um, in May earlier. Okay, great. All right, well, thank Mason, you so much. Mason, Mason the results of that survey did not apply to 1963. <laughs> <laughs> you Trust me, y'all all got A's. <laughs> that was Professor Holly Pinheiro. His upcoming book is titled The Family's Civil War, Black Soldiers and the Fight for Racial Justice. That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.